invite you to take a Bible and turn almost to the end of the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. Just, just back up a little bit from the book of Revelation. You come to 1 Peter chapter 3. I've been preaching a series of sermons on the, the topic of marriage. And they all are kind of interdependent, so if you only hear this one and, out, and not the others, you'll, you'll, be a, you'll be at a great disadvantage. We come to 1 Peter 3. To set the context, I want to read a few verses from the previous chapter, verses 9 and following, but then focus on 1 Peter 3. But I'll begin with chapter 2, verse 9. Hear God's word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the last verse where he's talking about others may see your good deeds and glorify God, beginning there, he talks about how believers are to live with various authorities. He talks about the government, he talks about slaves and masters, and bad masters. Then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about husbands and wives and living in subjection to one another, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your spirit might be present. We can uh, talk and look at your word, and, but we pray that something would happen, that seeds would land on good ground and bear much fruit and that you might speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you wrestle with the feelings of not measuring up? I mean, we are constantly reminded through advertising and through the media that, that whatever you are, you're not right, that you are not the right shape, that you're not the right age, not the right height, not the right income, not living in the right location, not the right skin color. The bar is constantly raised higher than we are able to jump, and it can do a number on us. There was a Peanuts cartoon, and it had Lucy as a psychiatrist sitting there with her little sign, 
Psychiatric help, five cents. And her course, her customer is none other than Charlie Brown. And she is very frustrated with him at this point. And she says this, Listen to me, Charlie Brown. Sometimes I feel we are not communicating. You, Charlie Brown, are a foul ball in the line drive of life. You are often in the shadow of your own goalpost. You are a miscue. You are a three-putt on the 18th green. You are a 7-10 split on the 10th frame. You are a dropped rod and reel in the lake of life. You're a missed free throw. You're a shanked nine iron. You're a third call strike. You are a bug on the windshield of life. Do you understand? Do I make myself clear? Helpful counsel, isn't it? That's the way counsel we get from the world each day. The gospel of Christ is good news. It contains some bad news that we are spiritually dead, that God must punish sin and the punishment is death. But the good news is he has sent a substitute, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and who allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute for others. And now through faith in him, we can have new life. We can have the promise of sins forgiven and eternal life. That is affirming, that is positive, that God loves me, that he is for me. And I wanted to read verses 9 and following because Peter is reminding these persecuted believers of that. And he uses some phrases. He says, we are a chosen race. He's talking about the church, the true Israel, the people God has chosen. But now we are aliens and strangers in this world. This chosen race comes from all races. It's made up of individuals from every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue. So who am I in Christ? Who am I? He says, I am chosen. I don't know why. God chooses not because of anything he sees in us, but because of his grace. He did not foresee faith or goodness or sincerity or intellect. It was entirely grace. When Jesus spoke to the disciples and said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. He says we are a holy nation. We are a people of God's own possession. We are a people who belong to God. Do you know why that is important? Because when someone important or famous owns something, even something that has almost no value in itself, it makes that thing, in some cases, priceless. Whether it's the desk of Winston Churchill, or the house of Ernest Hemingway, or a bed that George Washington slept in, their very almost worthless, mundane things are given great price, if not priceless, because of who owned them. Peter's saying... You are God's possession in Christ. You are priceless because of that. You have great value. Now, all of these privileges carry with them a great responsibility. And that responsibility comes in the passage we read from chapter 2. He says that you may, verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God leaves us as believers here to proclaim. The word means to advertise. We are God's advertisements of his virtues, of his glory. John Piper put it this way, Our identity is not an end in itself, but for the sake of introducing others to him. He has given us our identity in order that his identity might be proclaimed through us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. That's true in relationships. And so in the passage before us, what I skipped over there, the latter part of chapter 3, he's saying here's how you proclaim 
God's virtues in a relationship where you've got a bad boss, a bad master, or with the government that at that time was dictatorial in Rome. And then he's going to talk about how do you proclaim the goodness of God when you've got a believer, a believing wife married to an unbeliever. So with those thoughts in mind in that context, let's look at verses 1 to 7 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Now you see something right off the bat. How many verses are written to wives? Six. How many to men? One. Let's go home. I rest my case right there. (laughs) How do wives carry out what they are to... Well, for fairness sake, if you were here last week or the week before, Ephesians 5 is about three times the number of words to men, to husbands, as it is to wives. So, How do wives carry out what they are to be and do? They were in a tight spot because as Christianity moved into, as it invaded the culture, more women were coming to faith in Christ than men were. And that was true in the ministry of Jesus. Think about that. Who were the first at the tomb? The women were. Who were the first to believe the resurrection? The women were. As married women committed to Christ, they had a problem. They were already married, in many cases, to unbelieving men. And so they gave themselves to the Lord. Now, here are obvious questions, and they're not just distinct to, the, to that time. They're also distinct now. What does this whole relationship then mean in this context? Does faithfulness to God mean that I divorce my unbelieving husband? How do I live with an unbeliever? How does this affect the way we raise our children? Do I get away from him? Should I stay in this marriage or should I not? If I stay in this marriage, what does submission mean? This was a big issue. It was a very big issue. And so there are serious questions to be answered. And that's what Peter is going to do. He's going to address them right now. And he starts with the phrase that we saw in Ephesians, be subject to your own husbands. Let me tell you what being subject is not. What submission is not. And these are based on this passage. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. It does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. You can see that in verse 1. She is a Christian. He is not. He has one set of ideas about ultimate reality and about truth. She has another. Peter calls her to be submissive while assuming she will not submit to his view of the most important thing in the world, God. So submission cannot mean agreeing with everything that your husband thinks. Second, submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. It's not the inability or the unwillingness to think for yourself Here, in this case, in chapter 3, here's a woman who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. She thought about it. She pondered it. She assessed the truth claims of Jesus. And then she determined in her heart that it was true. And she chose to believe in Jesus. She chose him. Her husband, on the other hand, has heard it, apparently. As Peter says, he does not obey the... he disobeyed the word... But he has heard it, but he's chosen not to believe it. Now, she thought for herself, and she acted on it. Peter does not tell her to retreat from that commitment. Third, submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. Some people say, well, if it just means you take him as he is. That's the way it, it, it always is. Just take him. That's it. Don't even think about change. No, the whole point of this is to bring change. 
Verse 1 says, Be subject to your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So if you didn't care about the Bible, you might say, well, some submission has to do with taking a husband the way he is and not trying to change him. In reality, in this passage, submission, paradoxically, is the strategy to change him. Fourth, submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. The text clearly teaches that the wife is a follower of Jesus before and above being a follower of her husband. Submission to Jesus relativizes, if that's the right word, submission to husbands and governments and employers and parents. That's what's in the entire book. So when Sarah is, refers to Sarah Ham, that, Sarah Ham, that was Abraham's wife, Sarah, called Abraham Lord, it's Lord with a, with a small l. It's lowercase. It's like sir. And the obedience she rendered is qualified obedience because her supreme allegiance was to the Lord, capital L. Fifth, submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Now this is, this is near and dear to my heart. It does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. Yes, the husband, a good husband, should indeed be a source of strength and build up and sustain his wife. But he should not be the source of strength. What this text shows is that when a husband's spiritual leadership is lacking, in this case he's not even a believer, a Christian wife is not lacking strength. So submission does not mean that she's dependent on him to supply her strength of faith and virtue and character. In fact, the text assumes just the opposite. She is summoned to develop, to develop her strength and her character, not from her husband, but for her husband, to see him one to faith. And verse 5 says that her hope is hope in God, in the hope that her husband will join her in that hope in God. Finally, submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of fear. The second part of verse 6 says that Sarah, you are Sarah's spiritual children. You are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In other words, submission is free. It's not coerced by fear. The Christian wife is a free woman. She, when she submits to her husband, whether he is a believer or unbeliever, she does it in freedom, not out of fear. Now, the books, I mentioned John Piper a few moments ago because some of this sermon is drawn from several sermons he preached on this passage and about Mother's Day through the years. And he, he has ministered to many of us here through his writings or through his, he's been here to preach a while back. And, and he, he writes an essay, he tells about his mother. Even though he's pastored for over 30 years in Minneapolis, he grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. And he says this about his mother. I grew up in a home where my father was away about two-thirds of each year. He is an evangelist. He held about 25 crusades each year, ranging in length from one to three weeks. He would leave on Saturday, be gone for one to three weeks, and come home on Monday afternoon. I went to the Greenville airport hundreds of times, and some of the sweetest memories of my childhood are the smile on my father's face as he came out of the plane and down the steps 
and almost ran across the runway to hug me. That means that my sister and I were reared and trained mostly by my mother. She taught me almost everything practical that I know. She taught me how to mow the grass, how to keep a checkbook, how to ride a bicycle, how to drive a car, how to make notes for a speech, how to set the table, and how to make pancakes. She paid the bills, handled repairs, cleaned house, cooked meals, helped me with my homework, took us to church, led us in devotions. She was superintendent of the intermediate department at church, head of the community garden club, and a tireless doer of good for others. Listen to this sentence. She was incredibly strong in her loneliness. The early 60s were the days in Greenville, South Carolina, when civil rights were in the air. The church took a vote one Wednesday night on a resolution not to allow black people to worship in the church. When the vote was taken, she stood entirely alone in opposition. And when my sister was married in the church in 1963 and one of the ushers tried to seat some black friends of our family all alone in the balcony, my mother indignantly marched out of the sanctuary and sat them herself on the main floor with everyone else. I've never known anyone quite like my mother. She seemed to me me omnicompetent and overflowing with love and energy. But here is my point. When my mother came home, When my father came home, my mother had the extraordinary ability and biblical wisdom and humility to honor him as the head of the home. She was, in a best sense of the word, submissive to him. It was an amazing thing to watch week after week as my father came and went. He went, and my my mother ruled the house with a firm and competent and loving hand. And he came, and my mother deferred to his leadership. So what is submission? I just spent some time on what submission is not. Here's a good description. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry that leadership out according to her gifts. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry that leadership out according to her gifts. Gifts. It's an attitude which says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. And I don't flourish when you are passive and leave everything to me. Now, true submission, what he is describing here, brings with it a powerful effect. One, it embellishes her beauty. It embellishes her beauty. Is the Bible Now, as you look at these verses about verse 3, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. We know enough about the Scriptures. We don't need to get in an argument about this as to whether if this is saying you shouldn't wear jewelry or braid your hair. We know in other places in the Bible they did use jewelry. When the prodigal son's father greeted him, what did he do? He put a robe on him and a ring on his finger. It's talking about proportion here. It's talking about emphasis. Now, do you think we need some balance in our culture today? Do you think we've got it right? If we think men are judged by by our appearance, feel for the women, guys. It is totally about appearance. I mean, if you look at media and what's promoted, it's all appearance, it's all look. Character means nothing. So we are, at the, we are as far as the extreme, I guess, as you can get away from the biblical balance being sought here. And he's saying that an inner, an inner beauty is powerful. It embellishes that. Now, I don't want to make too much of this. 
Do you know when Sarah and Abraham, remember Sarah, uh, Abraham said, tell, him, tell the guy, you're my sister, so he won't take you. Remember that? You know how old Sarah was then? Speak to me. 80. Now, I don't want to say too much. Would you take a godly woman? And she, is, she is attractive in any age. And our culture doesn't get it. But if you're a godly man and you're looking for things that God, you see it and there's a radiance about it. I'm around a lot of older, I'm people, around people of all ages. And I have buried a lot of godly older women from our church. Uh, and I've been in situations that might have seemed ugly just at the stage of life in hospital rooms, but there was a beauty there you could not explain. There was an attractive beauty. There's a power to it. And Peter's saying, you tap into that power and it's going to make an impression on that unbelieving husband. That's what he's saying. When a woman adopts her God-ordained role with joy and delight, there's also evangelistic power. In verse 1, that he may be one. It's probably tempting, if you're a Christian wife and you're married to an unbeliever, you may think the only way to win him is to preach to him, to make sure he knows what the Bible says. Well, how much do you think unbelieving husbands enjoy the preaching of their wives? For that matter, how much do believing husbands enjoy the preaching of our wives? We make sermon CD, well, however they do it, is available on the Internet. I don't think we've had any demands for preaching wives to husbands, you know, for to let's make some CDs so men can listen to these in their cars. Um, that they may be one without a word. Why? Because right there in the man's house, in the kitchen, in the living room, in the bedroom, is a walking, talking, living, breathing gospel presentation. That's what he's saying. <clears throat> the Bible is a wonderful sword, but it's a terrible hammer. And it, it's a terrible billy club. Harry Reeder has preached here a number of times. He's a pastor at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. He and his wife Cindy were married back in college. He finished college at Covenant College, and he was a student pastor in Chattanooga. And he tells about being in this, this church. He was a student pastor, and there was a very strong Christian woman named Ruth. And Ruth had a husband who was not converted. He was an unbeliever. And everyone knew that Ruth's husband, Harry, was an unbeliever. And she wanted, like any caring wife, she wanted to see her husband come to faith in Christ. So she invited Harry and his wife, Cindy, to come to lunch at their house. Harry tried to build some rapport with, uh, with did I call her husband Harry? Her husband's James. She built some rapport with Harry and his wife, and he's trying to talk to the husband. Harry could tell the man wasn't real happy about them being there at his house. And so they went a number of times. Harry tried to get to know this man. He liked to deer hunt. Harry wasn't into hunting, but he tried to, you know, establish some kind of common ground and talk to him. And they were invited to come to Thanksgiving. So at Thanksgiving dinner, they are there, and Ruth announces, it's time to eat. And everybody gathered around the table, and Ruth says, Preacher, pray for us. Harry says now he doesn't know why he did it, but he didn't pray. He just remained there silent. And Ruth said again, Preacher, are you going to pray for us or not? And Harry looked over at her husband, James, and he said, Would you like for me to pray at your table? And James got a big grin on his face and said, Preacher, that's a great idea. You pray for us today and you give thanks. And so Harry said, I will. And he prayed. Well, later on, 
Ruth talked to Harry and said, why did you do that at the dinner table? And Harry said, why don't we begin with respect? Don't act like your husband's not here. Let's respect him. Well, guess what? The next Sunday, James is in church and remains so for the next several weeks. And a month later, he commits his life to Christ. And Ruth kind of had the light bulbs come on that day at the dinner. And she changed her approach. And her submission was instrumental by his own testimony in winning him to faith in Christ. He was a car mechanic. Five years later, a garage door fell on his head and he died. So now he's in heaven. What do you have? That You have the witness of a godly, loving, submissive wife. Women who fear the Lord are fearless in submission. They hope in God. <clears throat> they hope in submission and to the Lord are powerful. You never know what's going to happen when you honor the Lord. I've told you before, I told you some of it last week, of my own story with my own mother. As a child and teenager, I saw this lived out right before me in my own family. My father was an unbeliever. He claimed to be an unbeliever. He thought, he thought the Bible was, was silly. He was a lawyer. He thought the Bible didn't make any sense. It wasn't provable and so forth. And he just wasn't interested. He would tell you, I'm not interested. And my mother was a very committed Christian. And so during my elementary years and junior high school years, also her temperament was outspoken, strong-willed. She was a junior high school and high school teacher, if that tells you anything about that. She did not restrain herself in what she thought and what she would say. And boy, she let my dad know. She nagged him about church. We would go home from church on Sunday, and especially if Jim Baird had preached about Father's Day or something, we would get home and it was, she was, you know, she wanted a Christian family, she wanted a Christian husband, and this man she was married to was blocking her goal. And you know the result of that is always anger. So when we would get home, he would have stayed home and watched sports while we were at church, my sister and myself. I would rather have been with him at that time. We would arrive home, and I can't express it in church as well, but there was a price to pay for the rest of that afternoon. And it was not pleasant. I would usually leave the house and get my... 22 rifle. Boy, that's unpolitically correct. I'd get that and go up in the woods behind my house and spend the afternoon just to get away. Then Jay Adams from this church, a counselor who was living here, counselor and author, came to preach at our church. And he enlightened my mother and many others about the truths from this passage. And she changed. And she told my father, I will never badger you about church again. And he, she said, I'm sorry. And she changed her whole approach. I told you last week about how he came to faith in his final years. Uh, and he would comment on how much our, my mother, his wife, had taught him about the Bible. So in my family, as a child, I saw this come about exactly what Peter is describing. It's not a guarantee. But there are stories, and I could tell you many more as a pastor, when Either you would have thought the marriage, there was no hope, there was no possibility, and God intervened. And he intervened in a way people could not anticipate and not expect. And when I hear of couples that are planning to divorce, I always think, you don't know what God may do. Give it time. How much time? More than you've given it. That's my, more than you've given it. Because you don't know what may happen. Okay. Last thing to the women. Why would a woman who's smart and intelligent and in her right mind 
do this for a guy who's not worth it. Because Jesus did it for her. That's the only possible motivation. Because Jesus is the love of her life. Because Jesus gave himself to save her. She would do anything for her husband, Jesus. And if her husband, Jesus, says, serve your husband, Billy Bob, then she's glad to do so because she loves her heavenly husband. And she's not looking to her marriage to satisfy the longings of her heart. She's not looking to her earthly marriage to give her security and satisfaction and meet all of her needs because she knows no man can do that. No marriage can do that. She finds that in Jesus when she does it's beautiful. And the world even proclaims, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Okay, a word to men. As I mentioned earlier, I think we're out of time. No, I, I got just a little bit here. Husbands are to embrace the calling to lead, to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He is to give her honor and understanding and patience and protection and preference. For her, he is willing to die and to lead their families in serving Christ. In verse 7, it says, live with her in an understanding way. We saw, if you were here with us a few weeks ago, when God created marriage in Genesis 2, he said he made a helper suitable, suitable for him, the first woman that he makes for Adam is suitable. And that means different. It means different, but she's complementary. And so your wife, husbands, or husbands-to-be, is like a tapestry. And it's your job to learn about all the threads that make up this rather complicated tapestry and to know her deepest needs, to know her unspoken concerns, her fears. That's all part of understanding. The burden to understand is on the man on the husband. We're to show her honor, it says, because she is a weaker vessel. It doesn't have in mind there weakness of character. That's already been addressed earlier. Or weakness of determination. All likelihood, it means the, the weakness of male. Uh, of the male is physically stronger. Now, the, verse 7 it, is a scary. Some Derek Thomas says this is one of the most terrifying phrases in the Bible that says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There is some mystical, spiritual reality that the way I treat my wife affects my relationship with God. I don't understand at all. You see this phrase a few other places in Scripture. Some of the guys I surveyed on Wednesday night, when I said, what do you think this means? They said, well, I think it means if you're not in a right relationship with your wife, you won't feel like praying. Well, that, that may be part true. I know guys that aren't in right relationships with their wives, and they feel very prideful about how much they pray. Uh, I think it means that God doesn't hear our prayers. But so it's like, I think that God, in a sense, turns a deaf ear to us. Now, here's my best explanation, and you can argue with me later whether it's all biblically correct, but we have three daughters. Two are married. And I remember some of the guys they drug home, boy, back in high school, and I love the and I, I identify with the guy that said, you know, when I saw my daughter walk out the door with that first teenager, I, I thought I'd put a Stradivarius in the hands of a gorilla. And and I like what that and you can use this one, guys. The, the fellow, when the boy showed up at the door, getting to know him, getting to talk to him, said, "Look, before you think about dishonoring or disrespecting my daughter, just realize I don't mind going back to prison." <laughs> um, <clears throat> 
Anyway, I, I am I'm probably the most disengaged father-in-law. Uh, I care and love them, but I don't pry, don't exert myself in the situation. And um, but there's a certain extent, and I I love our sons-in-law, but if they don't honor and respect and take care of my daughters, they will answer to me in some way. Um, if I feel that way about my earthly daughters, women, how do you think your heavenly father feels about you? I take this as he's saying, husband, you take care of that wife I gave you. Oh, and if you don't, forget this prayer stuff. You go get things right with my daughter, then come talk to me. He's saying if we don't live with our wives in an understanding way, if we don't show them honor as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs of the grace of life, we are before God, we are made right through Christ on equal standing with him so that your prayers may not be hindered. I could say more, but let me, last point, and we'll wrap it up. And I would say this to men about spiritual leadership in the home. Will your leadership in the home be affirmed, do you think? I mean, will those you lead, if you, if you go home and say, I'm really going to turn over a new leaf, I, let's pray together. And if you have children involved, look, let's, right after, I know we finished a meal, and I don't ever do this, but here, I've got this devotional book. Just sit tight for about two minutes. Do you think when that's over, they're going to bow down and say, oh, great master of the house, you are so good, you are so benevolent. Do those lit, led celebrate the leader anywhere? Coaches? Teachers? In government? No. It's part of our nature. We want somebody to lead. We just don't want to be led. And that's true of all of us. So if they don't give you accolades, uh, if you aren't praised by those you seek to lead, uh, if you're looking for accolades, I mean, if you're a guy that says, okay, hey, I did that, I went, I tried to have prayer with my wife, and I tried to pray with the family, and they, they weren't responsive, and they didn't even pay attention. The kids got in a fight, right? Yeah, I tried that. Well, so what? What do you expect? Well, you say, I expect them to follow my leadership. I'd ask you, do you follow other people's leadership? They're acting the way to you, the way you act toward others. <laughs> at least us at the church. <laughs> so that's just, we do it because it's right. We don't do it because we're, we put some kind of unwritten contract on our wife and kids that they've got to uh, respond to us a certain way or, or praise us or ever thank us. Maybe never, maybe never. You do it because it's right. I heard about a preacher, he asked the congregation, has anyone here reached perfection? No hands went up. Does anyone here know anyone who's reached perfection? Finally, one guy in the back raised his hand. The preacher goes, who? He said, my wife's deceased first husband. <laughs> when you lead in your home, your kids are not going to say, oh, thank you, Father, this is what my heart longs for. Thank you, thank you. If your wife doesn't respond that way, just, just realize you don't respond that way. But we long for servant leadership. And when the, the leader gets bitten, and when they snap back at you, that's no reason to lapse into passivity and say, well, I tried it, it didn't work. No, as God's sons, we lead. I don't know a man, I don't care who he is, I don't know a man who in his DNA does not want to be a good leader in the family. Not that we are good leaders in the family, I just don't know one who doesn't want to be a good leader in the family. Okay. 
I close with this, same way I close all these sermons, and that is we must know Christ. Do you find your satisfaction in knowing Jesus Christ? You cannot find it in a marriage or through another person. And if you take these messages and walk out of here saying, I'm going to try harder, I've just got to do this, I've got to try harder, that may be the worst thing you could take out of these sermons. Until you know God as your Father who delights over you, who looks at you with love and mercy and grace and compassion, you will not be able to love another person until you experience that unconditional love for you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we as your bride through Christ, you've loved us with an, ever, an unconditional love, an everlasting love, a love that doesn't abandon us, uh, and an undemanding love. And we, we pray that, that you by your grace and mercy, might strengthen our marriages. Father, it is frustrating. It is frustrating and demoralizing to work in a relationship, in a marriage, and find that things are not clicking. And Lord, to the degree that that is happening with any of us here in this room, we ask that you'd help us to find our security and source of strength and meaning with a relationship with you and not expect that any spouse or anyone else can meet that in our lives. May you allow us even today to drink from the unstoppable, the unquenchable fountains of your love and mercy for us. As your bride, Christ is our groom. In Jesus' name, amen.